Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Well, hello, and welcome to GodPod number 48. Um, the observant of you will realise that I'm not Graham Tomlin. This is Jane Williams speaking here. Graham is busy teaching this morning. But I do have another regular with me, Michael Lloyd. I do. And also somebody that um, ardent GodPod listeners will have met before, mm-hmm. Stephen Backhouse. Hello. Stephen um, has been on GodPod before to talk about um, politics, and he's now uh, joining the staff of St Paul's Theological Centre regularly as our lecturer in social and political theology. That's right. What is social and political uh, theology? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, social and political he theology... He hasn't written lectures yet, <laughs> so he doesn't know. <laughs> yes. Uh, don't tell uh, my boss that I haven't written all the lectures yet. I think, you asked me this earlier, and I think you could talk about it maybe like coalface theology. So it's the theology that happens on the front lines in a way. Political pretty much refers to almost anything we do in life could be construed politically. So that incorporates ethics. Anytime you have to talk about medical ethics or sexual ethics or war and peace ethics, then you're probably also making political decisions. Um, When you start to look at the movements, cultural movements and the various ways that Christians like to uh, identify themselves within their society, that often gets expressed politically or politicians try and uh, cater to some of those groups. So that becomes interesting. So as a Christian, to assess our own Christian cultures, that's that's political theology. Um, yeah, that sort of stuff. And at the moment, the I'm working on a, a, my lecture series is to do with human identity, which is a really general way of talking about who we are and how we fit in the world. So it's Christian views of that. Mm-hmm. Would it be very unfair to say that ethics is about what's the right thing to do and, and the political side of it is what can we get away with? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, really <laughs> ethics and, and politics are, are often very different things. That's true. And sometimes what is legal is not what is moral. And sometimes what is immoral is legal. So we have to make those distinctions as Christians as and well. And obviously, you, you shouldn't legislate for everything that's right. You know, right. It'd be silly to have a law making, I don't know, being nice. Uh, a, uh, a legal, le- yes, or a legal requirement, right? And there's lots of sins that, there's lots of sins that we don't make uh, illegal, Ex- exactly, which is quite rightly so. So, in a sense, there's right to be a distinction between ethics and politics. Well, there? a lot of my, I see my job often is sort of a historian as well of looking at, well, how did past c- Christian groups try and figure this out, mm. uh, and what happened to them when they tried to make Christianity the law, for yep. instance, and uh, quite often. Got very the state nasty. maybe did okay, but Christianity probably doesn't fare so well when it becomes law. So mm. it's interesting to look at that and just to flag up some of those issues. I've just Probably. been um, teaching about um, uh, politics in the 4th century when the Emperor Constantine ah. became a Christian and the whole of Christian history changed. And the big argument among Christian historians about whether it, that was actually good for Christianity or not to become um a, a religion that was permitted and acceptable, or whether actually Christians are always better off to be on the outside of uh, social and political life. Dare Mo- I ask Mo- what you think? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as I'm married to somebody who has to uphold the establishment of the Church of England, um, I think it's not a straightforward answer, is it? No. Um, yeah. I think there are benefits and dangers, um, both from being inside and from being outside. 
Plus, it just is the case that Constantine made Christianity the established religion mm. of Rome. And there's no point us talking about what, it, yes. what should have happened because we wouldn't have the Christianity we have if he hadn't done that. Well, that's anyway. true. So we have to deal with hand, that. It does. You know, you do have to face questions now as to how much do we want yeah. to yeah. Uh, get Christian views and morality inculcated in For sure. uh, the law, the constitution, that For kind sure. of thing. And, and Christians get very hot, hot under the collar about whether the word God is in the European Constitution and yeah. and whether you're allowed to pray in a school in the States and, and those sorts of issues. So you can't do that in isolation from the way it's been done in the past, the fact that it's been done in the past, yeah. and trying to learn from that. I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we shall look forward, Stephen, to your regular appearance on this programme and we shall keep asking you um, interesting questions about politics. And yes, all the ones that we can't we, exactly, we don't know face, the face with that. The problem with my subject is that people actually care about a lot of it. And so, Are you suggesting I, that is I the case? <laughs> I didn't mean as opposed to your subject, but I mean in terms of uh, academic study in general, yeah. um, not a lot of people get really upset about some subjects, whereas my subject does tend to divide mm. people because they have very strong opinions. You don't have to be uh, an ivory tower academic to have an opinion about yeah. war or ethics or any yeah. of those things. So. And indeed, it's one of the, the big issues for our culture at the moment, isn't it, when yeah. um, the, the, the role of Christianity in public life mm. is increasingly yeah. under threat. Yeah. So um, I know, and it is, it is very kind of polarised between those who want to exclude uh, all religion from public life, um, on the one hand, and those who want to Christianise the whole thing, mm. um, such that Christian morality becomes the law, <laughs> and you criminalise... Know, lust, for instance, or whatever, uh, and uh, and that's a very and they push each other to be more and more extreme, don't they? More yes. and more in, in yeah. those two directions. Yeah, um, I'm wanting to say something about her contribution without uh, trying to enforce one's or entrench one's own position legally and constitutionally. I try not to be fearful. I see a lot of my job is trying to get people not to be afraid of what's going on because mm. it probably has happened before yes. and Christianity mm. has not died when it's happened you know it, it when Christians were persecuted as martyrs it actually was probably quite difficult to live on the sharp end of that but historically it was there were some good things that came of that and also when Christianity was the established culture yes it did hurt a lot of um, genuine Christian thought and belief but also it set up our civilizations in some amazing ways and established universities and hospitals and and wonderful churches so mm -hmm. and both uh, of those cultures well, of course coexist in our world today exactly exactly so there's no point sort of deciding ahead of time that no. one is of the devil and the other is of god because i think they both god makes good of, of all different situations so. mm -hmm. good so if you have particular opinions about this do write in to to godpod and um, we'll make sure that stephen has a chance to grapple with all of these issues but uh, and as you can tell the the three of us could sit here and just talk about our own thoughts all morning but if we were to bring in some of our listeners now with some of the questions that have been sent to us, um, in fact, it might be worth going straight on to something that is sort of connected and, and will give Stephen a chance to, to go on thinking aloud for us. Um, we've had a, an email from somebody called Edmund um, who wants to talk about um, a, a lecture that he heard from the Emerging Church Movement. Um, and he particularly wants to look at the idea that there is no transcendent truth. Could you talk about this, Stephen? The idea that there's no... Would you want to read a bit more of it? 
Right. I, I, yes, I, I saw this email as well. I, actually, I might, I might read yes, a bit read of it, it if you don't yeah. mind. Um, yes, yeah, so I just heard a, a lecture uh, from somebody who I confess I haven't heard of about the emerging church movement. There are parts of this perspective that strike me as healthy and right, and others that strike me as repackaged Foucault Derrida deconstructionist, no transcendent truth. Could you talk about the movement on Godpod? And it sounds as if you could. Well, I, I was uh, I was struck by this. Now, I'm, I'm sorry, Edmund, I might not be talking about the emerging church so much, but I was interested how uh, it's... I do face quite a lot of people get, get quite scared quite quickly when they see words like deconstruction or when they hear about the postmodernism or POMO and that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I might go out on a limb and, and maybe defend the... Derrida and Foucault and a little bit, a little bit. Um, just in case some of our listeners don't know who well, I'd Derrida love to explain is. it. Oh, good. <laughs> so uh, these chaps are... That is, of course, cipher for Jane and me. <laughs> Could you yes, tra- we translate it for Jane and me? <laughs> the, the, I think the, the, the point of the email was that, that he was worried about the idea that says uh, there's no overall, there's no ar- overarching truth there's no one big story that we can all sign up to. There's actually lots of little stories. And I think some of the emerging church type uh, philosophy is, well, because that's the case, we want to try and plug into lots of these little subcultures and be church to those subcultures. And some people get worried about that. Some Christians get worried about that because they say, well, if you, if you don't admit that there's one overarching story, then you're somehow not admitting that there is universal truth. Uh, and so there's quite a lot of people who get sort of worried about when they see these philosophers such as Derrida and Foucault, who are, uh, uh, they both were French, but they're, it's, a, it's a whole movement, a European and American movement called deconstructionism, which is actually about looking at some of these stories that we like to tell ourselves as, as nations, as institutions, and it deconstructs them. So, it's, so Foucault was interested, he, he, he thought of it as archaeology. He goes to the root of, why do we think this about ourselves? Why do we think uh, that Protestantism is, uh, you know, this particular way it is? Or why do we think that uh, England is this particular country? And he goes down into the roots of it, and he points out that, well, not all English people always thought the same way about being English, or uh, not not everyone thought that punishment. We were talking about morality and, and the law recently. Well, Foucault did some lo- lots of work on uh, punishment, and he points out that we haven't always thought that the same things were wrong at all times, and so our view of punishment has changed. Uh, and so what he does is he breaks down some of these overarching stories that we tell ourselves, and he says, well, it hasn't actually always been the case that everybody has always thought these things. And Derrida is similar as well, and he, he, he breaks down a lot of... Um, I guess one word I'd like to put in is, is there's a lot of humility in some of these mm-hmm. deconstructionists because what they're trying to do is they're trying to say we shouldn't get too confident and self-confident that what we're saying is absolutely always going to be true because it hasn't always been that way. And, and that's an important thing to say in the modern world in particular, isn't it? Yeah. When people are not exposed so much to history, um, the kind of general sense is that people's historical awareness is, is less uh, than it used to be. Yeah. Um, one's, less, one's more inclined to think that the way things are now is just the way things are. And, yeah. Um, but on the other hand, we do live much closer, by and large, to people 
of other cultures and histories yes, we than do. we ever have before, yes, yes. Um, which is, I think, part of the the, the sort of um, emotional roots of postmodernism, postmodernism, <laughs> isn't it? That we want to be able to say our neighbours who believe completely different things yeah. have an equal, equal, equally valid view of the world. Um, but um, as Christians, mm. we surely do believe there is one story that makes sense of all human. Um, existence and that I suppose you might say that we don't necessarily in each of our different situations tell that story in the same way. Yeah, yeah exa- right. I mean and this is why I wouldn't recommend everyone to run out quickly and buy the first Derrida book they see in the bookshops. I mean all Re- I'm saying really is... Really don't, really don't try and read Derrida. <laughs> <laughs> don't try this at home. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean there is also I mean, the other thing is, is the deconstructionists are not uh, monolithic in the academic world. There are a lot of people who disagree with them, and they don't. You don't have to be a Christian to disagree with with deconstructionism. All I'm trying to say is, it's not uh, actually the worst thing in the world to inject a little bit of humility into our, the way we talk about things. Uh, and also, Derrida was particularly interested in justice because he would say, uh, "What is this? What is this culture telling stories about itself? What are they saying about themselves? And whose stories didn't get told mm. so that mm. this dominant narrative could be could be constructed?" Uh, and I think that's uh, actually not a bad idea at all to think about the poor and the marginalized, especially as Christians. So I, and then you, you describe this multicultural world that we all live in. I think there's some good resources there in the postmodernists because they're saying, oh, how do we all live together without killing each other? Mm. We might not all agree, but we have to be, learn to disagree without killing each other, which is actually pretty good because the old modernist view, there are some modernist views that, that really can't deal with disagreement. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think as Christians, we can say there is an overarching universal truth, but we can be humble in recognizing that we might not always be able to express it. We may not have it all. Or we may not have it all. Mm. Mm. So, yeah. In our own individual heads or our own culture. Which, which in fact, we should have known from our own Christian tradition, Jewish tradition. That's kind of idolatry, isn't it? Thinking that you've got it. The whole picture of God, yeah, <laughs> completely formed. Yeah. Um, so that degree of humility is actually, actually part of what it means to grow, um, uh, uh, grow spiritually. Grow and and there's a dialogue. Yeah. There's, there is this uh, dialogue within the scriptures of uh, certainly in the Hebrew in the Old Testament. There's lots of dialogue between um, different types of groups and what they thought of God. Mm-hmm. And so there are books of the Bible in that that don't always necessarily. Uh, they don't always really agree with each other about what they think about God, but they all agree that there is a God and that God is good and that God has a plan for them. And I don't know, there's something good in there. And then in the New Testament as well, there's, there are multiple narratives. They don't disagree with each other, but they don't, it isn't uh, one book from beginning to end. There are lots of different books. And that's books. presumably part of what the Holy Spirit is doing in bringing all these books together in one scripture for us now, is that yeah. we actually see them dialoguing with each other. Yeah. So, so we all read... Um, different accounts of of the kings, and we all read the four different gospels, um, and, and Paul and James, and and therefore have the opportunity to hear different religious voices speaking to each other out of that one canon, and then have to l- listen to them and learn from them, uh, and and shape as best we may something that is bigger than if you just listen to one of those voices. Yeah. But I mean that this is uh, wonderfully idealistic, and of course it's very easy to to do the deconstruction and yeah. point out what we're doing wrong. <laughs> but I don't notice that we've got much better at 
not fighting about things that we disagree about. No, not at all. Is there a constructive stage? Well, maybe this is where the Christian bit can come in. I mean, uh, it's... I don't think Christian truth is necessarily about... It's not always about propositions. It's about being the right person. That, so Christ models the right person of who, how to be the right kind of person before God. And I wonder if that might be where the transcendent truth is slightly coming in, where you, no matter, when you are faced with lots of different types of people, how are you to treat them? Mm. Yeah. How are you to respond to them? Not how are you to make them uh, sign up completely to, to your what you're saying and to believe the five points that you're presenting to them. I don't think that's necessarily the, I don't think that's what transcendent Christian truth is about. I think it's about something a bit more about how you, how you are as a person relating to other people. And it's trans- transcendent truth that is focused upon the cross, isn't it? Yeah. Upon, and, and there you get Jesus uh, not, he, he's positively refusing to uh, impose his agenda by force. Um, in fact, allowing other people to impose their agenda upon him by force rather rather than use violent force himself. Now, that is a mm, kind of model yeah, right. of how to yeah. Yeah. accept that there's disagreement, accept that I have a different agenda from you, yeah. um, but actually refuse to impose it upon you, yeah. upon you. And, and people, I think, fear, one of the postmodernism fears that if you believe anything too strongly, you'll, you'll end up imposing it upon somebody else. Right. Whereas if it's focused on this example, this model... Self-sacrifice. Uh, yeah, yeah. Then it's not going to impose itself upon yeah. others by force, only by persuasion and by modelling it in such a way as to make it attractive, ideally. And it is a very interesting um, model of transcendent truth, isn't it, Jesus? Mm. Uh, we tend to think that transcendent truth has to be timeless, has to be outside, has to be something that can be agreed by everybody at all times. Right. But actually God's transcendent truth is Jesus. Yeah. And that is an extremely different approach that that, that does, as you say, um, Stephen, actually have implications for how you live. So lived lives are part of the Christian witness to mm. believing in an overarching story for all human beings, presumably. It's, it's, it's personal, ultimately, yeah. more than propositional, isn't it? It's quite difficult to say what is this timeless truth <laughs> but personal, uh, in words. But personal doesn't mean... Um, Relative, does it? Does no, it mean, therefore, no. what's true for me isn't true for anybody else? Well, this is the difference exactly. between admitting that all humans are subjects, because we are subjects, we're not objects. And there's a difference between saying we're subjects and then going one step further into subjectivism, which is the ideology that you generate truth from within yourself. Mm. Mm. And now I wouldn't, I wouldn't ever want to go that far. That's not where I want to go. Mm. When I say Christians are subjects, I mean we are all persons standing before God who is also mm. a subject. It doesn't mean that we it's, generate all our It's precisely truth. that objective truth that enables right. us to be subjects, right, exactly. to see ourselves as the subjects, and to treat each other as subjects. Mm. Yeah, mm. yeah, um, yeah. So that's just the, what I would try and emphasize. If you were, if you were tempted to to be scared by postmodernism, that perhaps there's some resources there to help Christians who who don't buy into the pluralism, but who want to learn how to not be a pluralist, but yet how to live uh, in this real world mm. that we live in, humbly and peaceably. Humbly and peaceably. Yeah. And there's actually some good, there's some good stuff in there, and it's not the end of Christianity to to have a little bit of postmodernism in there. Some people have said it's actually a kind of modern rediscovery of original sin. Right. Yeah. 
is recognizing that we've all got an agenda. We've all got. Mm. We all tend to use what power we have badly yeah. to get our, to pursue our own agenda at the expense of other people's. Um, and up to that point, one would want to say, kind of agree, wouldn't we? So uh, yeah, absolutely. But if you were to take this into the next. Um, um, stage which is a stage that concerns a lot of us Hmm. is um, how do you do this humble um, not imposing your own agenda with mission yes Um, and we have an email from a listener um, who wants to look particularly at what it's like to be um, in a small not visibly successful church trying to live the kind of christian life that we've been talking about Um, it's um, a, a question from david Bate in bristol who's asking, who says probably 70% of the churches in the UK are fairly small. What words of encouragement do you have for the members of these churches when the harvest is great but there are few workers? Also, when finance seems to be the driving force due to the shortage of funds. Now, they're two slightly different questions but but related. Mm. Um, In a world... Uh, where actually we're not in a majority and we're not we're not in a position to impose our wills even if we wanted to. Um, how do we approach these kind of questions of mission and encouragement? I think, I mean, I think first thing is to remember that um, most of the churches to which the letters of the New Testament were written um, were pretty small, the whole, the whole house churches meeting people's homes. Um, that's the first thing to remember and so you know, it, they nevertheless had an impact. Um, the second thing I think to say is one of the things for which people are crying out in the modern world is community. Um, and there's something about a small church that enables that to happen, um, I think, better than than the big church. The big church has to work at it by having small group structures and all that sort of thing to replace the fact that in a small group, community you can know everybody you can actually have a depth of, of quali- and quality of relationship that's more difficult it's not impossible but it's more difficult in a larger church um, so I think enjoy that <laughs> would be part of enjoy the, what that offers in terms of the relational depth that you can have with one another I had a really interesting conversation some years ago with a pastor of one of these massive Korean churches mm-hmm. Um, and, who was, and he was in England studying theology because he said um, that actually he realised that they were like the, the seeds on, on the rocky ground. They came up very fast, massively successful, but actually had no depth. Mm. Um, mm. And um, I think one of the things that he was getting at is what is a successful church? Mm-hmm. And we tend to assume um, the same measures of success in Christianity as you would for anything else. Just mm. Something successful is something huge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and actually that isn't necessarily so, is it? No, it isn't. It's more a question of how are you treating each other yeah. <laughs> within that. The quality of relationship is as important as the number of people, it seems to me. Um, that's that's part of it. And also just the whole criterion of success is has got to be rethought uh, in the light of Jesus, really. And mm. I think... So what would it look like? Well, I mean, I, I, it's easier, of course, what it wouldn't look like. Uh, right, yeah. <laughs> and one needs to remember that Jesus' ministry was initially highly successful numerically. People flocked to him. And then people started leaving. Mm-hmm. Now, um, and, and numbers started dwindling. Now, he was just as faithful in both phases of, um, and he was perfect in both those phases. And so... Obviously, if one is in a community where the church is either shrinking or not growing, you have to ask yourself some questions and you have to ask some difficult questions of yourself. But it may not be that you're doing anything wrong. 
it may be that you're being perfectly faithful um, and that's just you're doing what God wants you to be doing um, and I think it's important to remember that, that that you can't make a direct equation between size and and success, or and, and even less between size and faithfulness. So, for both small churches and big churches, do you actually need to be thinking what kind of a lived, what kind of a life, what kind of a discipleship are we displaying mm. here? I mean, huge churches have great advantages for those of us who are um, naughty and superficial in that people may never get to know that we're naughty and superficial <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. we won't. I mean, communities expose all your your deepest insecurities, your, your, your faults and so on if people really get to know you. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's um, one of the things that, that, I mean, people say they long for community, but they very often actually don't like it when they get it because communities yep. require commitment and they point out to you that you're not perfect and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, so small churches do actually have a chance really to, to grow Christian discipleship, truthful Christian discipleship, which um, is bound to bear fruits later, isn't it? Yeah. But equally, they can be, um, it can be very inward-looking. Um, there was a parish I knew, again, many years ago and in, and many miles away from anywhere that anybody lives, um, uh, where a new vicar uh, was actually being very successful in, in this inner-city parish and bringing a lot of new people in. And the people who'd stayed there faithfully for decades, with only about a dozen of them, found it very difficult mm-hmm. and actually went to the bishop to complain, to say, this vicar's ruining our community life, all these new people coming in, we can't cope. And you can understand mm. that, can't you? Yes. But that was a small church that had become a club, inward-looking, um, supportive to, to that small group, but actually not interested in being church mm. in an important sense. I had to do some research a while ago, uh, not that long ago about uh, specifically in the English context of of the impact that that churches I'm here speaking of Anglican churches uh, what the impact they were having in their communities and it was quite interesting because it, it emerged that actually in terms of if you're going to talk about success in terms of a percentage of neighborhoods uh, getting involved, percentage of people in the neighborhood or the parish getting involved in the church, uh, percentage of of people sitting on, uh, on Sunday morning, you look at who's in the church, what percentage of those people live in the area. Uh, the very small village churches are a lot more successful than the big churches mm. in that way. So you might only have 30 people, 20 people sitting in your church, and yet that might be 30% of the village, or it might be 40% of the village. And so uh, then the, and that, so that was just people actually attending the church. And then there was the, also the impact of were these village churches serving their communities? And often the village churches, or the small ones, which m- you might be tempted to think were struggling or whatever, they were the ones that were, um, well, I'll put it this way, the very big churches, the mega successful popular churches, their big problems were how do we reach into our community? How do we integrate into our community? We have so many people driving in from outside. We can't seem to get our neighbors involved. How do we do this? That is not the problem that a lot of these village churches were having. They were already integrated into their community. Their church buildings were already being used in all sorts of ways. They are often the focal point of these these smaller communities. Absolutely. And, and it, I think that's a great encouragement. What mm-hmm. a great endorsement of these churches. They were already integral parts of their community. Absolutely. And you think of, <laughs> as you were talking, I kind of thought of Jesus pointing out the widow with her might. You know, it's a small yeah, contribution. Yeah. And yet that's what he majors on yeah. rather than the, those who were giving much more. Yeah. 
Um, and that's a complete facet of Jesus' whole ministry, pointing to the undramatic, pointing to the slow. Lots of the parables are about things that you don't really see, things, growth happening that you, is underground and you don't see it and it's not the dramatic. It, he almost had to reshape people's expectations where they were expecting a dramatic messianic movement and he didn't give them that. No, and mustard pointed seeds. To, mustard seeds pointed to widow's mites. And yeah. it seems to me that that comes from the temptation narrative where he was tempted to do something dramatic to jump down from the temple parapet um and and resisted that temptation saw it as being you know not the way to live live god's call on him yeah um, and tried to teach us to do the same and so if we don't value the small um seems to me we, we, we should ask ourselves some questions so very typically for theologians, we haven't, of course, looked at the second half of the question about money, res- uh, lack of resources um, that our listener wrote in. But what you're saying, Mike, has implications for that, presumably. It does. And I think, don't f- you know, finance, finance is not the only resources. They're, they're very useful. <laughs> and I don't d- minimise the problem of not having them. Um, but actually, you've got the people who are there. Um, and if they're the ones that God's given you at the moment, then then those are the resources to use, and you you run with that, mm. and and um, don't underestimate that either. A small group of, of people, just faithfully trying to live out uh, the gospel in their own lives, in their own community, and the, in the community they try to serve. Um, I mean, don't you think that there is a sense that if you are listening to God as you pray about how you want to be in your church or how you want your church to be? And as you seek God's will for your particular congregation, you will have the resources to do what God wants you to do. I mean, if if you are genuinely seeking his will as a congregation in those things, I imagine the endeavors that you set out for, you will have what you need, even if you, you might not have what you need to run a worldwide <laughs> <laughs> multimedia <laughs> empire, but you and probably will have the resource, you will have the resources to do what God wants you to do. Exactly. You, you may not have the resources that you want. Right. But that, that is yeah. a bit different, mm-hmm. isn't it? I mean, there's a hope, there's a hopeful, there's sometimes people shut all the doors before they've even um, tried to walk through them. They just assume ahead of time they won't be able to do anything. And I don't know if that's true. And maybe if you find you don't have the resources for what you think God wants you to do, maybe you need to listen again to right. what he wants you to do. Maybe <laughs> there, there's an opportunity in where you are yeah. um, that you know, your smallness can, can, and, and limited resources can enable. Well, I was part of a small church at a time when I, it was a real healthy thing. I really needed to, my, my family really, we needed to be part of this small little church and that, and that was a great encouragement to us. So, mm. And I'm glad that they were just faithfully being a small church, and that uh, that was exactly what I needed at, the, at the, that time of my life. So I'm very, I'm very full of encouragement for small, so-called unsuccessful churches. I think I think uh, God's with them. And well, I, the church, other church, the other half of my job, other than working for the St Paul's Theological Centre, is is uh, working for a, a church, a small church in the city, and a you know, congregation of about 25. And yet they're incredibly diverse. They. You know, span all the social spectrums and economic spectrums uh, in a way that some larger churches struggle to do, I think, um, a bit more kind of um, uniform in terms of the socio-economic groupings that they So attract. in your church, there are people who would, under no other circumstances, meet together and yeah, get to know each absolutely. other. Absolutely, yeah. 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 That is also a socio-interesting fact, socio-political fact about churches. Yeah. Where else in modern life will you find all hmm. classes, nationalities... 
all ages. I mean, all sorts of different types of people meet together in a church, and they'd never meet in any other institution mm. in our modern life at all. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yes. And, yeah. So, David, we hope there are some words of encouragement there. Um, small, small is very often beautiful. <laughs> um, but we'd love to hear how things go. Um, we've probably got time for one last one. This is rather a big one to start at the end of a God pod. But that gives us an excuse for not answering Exactly, it. which um, I'm sure we will need. <laughs> it's a question from somebody called Tim, um, who's, and it's a question about forgiveness, which is a perennial question. Um, and what he's asking is, is there ever forgiveness without repentance? Um, in Luke 17, it says, if your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Um, and Tim is reading this, as many people do, um, to suggest that repentance is a precondition for forgiveness. Does God ever forgive without repentance? Really important doctrinal question and practical question too, because it has implications for how we as Christians then treat each other. Um, do we forgive people who haven't asked us to forgive them? It's, it's a, I think forgiveness is one of the most complex um, of theological <laughs> concepts, really, and I, I'm not sure I've got my mind around it more than a tiny amount. In some ways, I think I, I want to say, yes, there can be forgiveness without repentance in the sense that... Um, when we become Christians, God forgives us everything. There's a whole lot of stuff we're not even aware that is wrong. Attitudes, attitudes of the heart, habits, um, ways of thinking. Uh, and it's, it's probably only years later that some of them kind of come to the surface, come to our, our attention, and we are, are brought to repentance over them. But that's a kind of response to to the forgiveness that God has offered us, um, rather than so the forgiveness. Okay, so the forgiveness brings about the condition. You don't have the condition first. Yeah, you aren't all. You haven't uh, repented of every single sin first. No, you are it, forgiven first. Because, because then, I'm, I'm just not even conscious of yeah. most of them. Does that work for human to human problems, though? If I if I wronged you mm. and then never apologized, could you forgive me? I think I could. I think I could offer that forgiveness, but it wouldn't come into reconciliation. It wouldn't blossom into reconciliation until right. until you acknowledged there was something wrong and right. and accepted that. I think. So forgiveness belongs in a context of a relationship. Yes, are you saying, and 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 you could start with the verse: "God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall have." shall not perish but have eternal life. Uh, and that's something God does before mm. anybody begins to respond at all. Mm. Mm. But um, God's forgiveness doesn't begin to make any difference to us until we know about it, until we start to, to, to be in a relationship with God, and that starts to change and deepen us. God doesn't require us to repent before he loves us, no. but his love will change us as we begin to respond to it. Yes. Does that make sense? No, I think it does make sense. It is it is a kind of uh, a spiral almost, <laughs> but it's a spiral that begins with God's acceptance and his forgiveness. Um, and then 
that releases us to to change and part of change is is repentance and that then brings about a greater degree of uh, both reconciliation with him and integration with ourselves and with one another and with the community i think and if if stephen did something awful to you and again again, again and yes. didn't apologize for it yes. um and you were not able to forgive him that would be very damaging for you wouldn't it quite apart from what it was like for stephen actually yes. to to to, ha- to hold something unforgiven um in yourself is is deeply damaging to you as a personality isn't it it is and and i think that's why i say you know i the person in that situation or me in this particular example um needs to offer forgiveness i i can't control your response and i shouldn't feel bad about being in a broken relationship if i've done everything i can which seems to be what this um verse is Mm. talking about it's it's the it's part of a big it's the end of a long process of offering rebuke and forgiveness to somebody and, mm. yes. and allowing those people to be to remain in uh, some reconciled relationship i guess there is something about um refusing to forgive somebody is is, is making a very strong judgment about that person you you are i suspect if you set up a rule for yourself you're saying i will never forgive this person until they do this and this and this you're putting yourself in 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 the sort of judgmental position which i i suspect doesn't really sit very well with jesus saying don't be quick to judge or look at the speck don't look at the speck in your brother's eye look at the log in your own i imagine that if you refuse to forgive you are probably putting yourself in a a, in a judgmental position there and there is that um parable isn't there about the the person who is forgiven a huge amount and then goes out and um, demands to be repaid a small amount from somebody else. I mean, to sit in that kind of judgment um, on other people, you have to be pretty sure that nobody else is also feeling the same about you for other reasons. I think that's right. And I, but I think the other thing one always needs to say in this kind of discussion is that forgiveness does not necessarily, in this life, um, inc- require... Uh, reconciliation, a yeah. resumption yeah. of relationship. Mm. There yeah. are some situations where, yes, you need to to, to proffer forgiveness, mm. um, but it wouldn't be right to get back into, say, an abusive relationship exactly. or whatever. Um, and people shouldn't feel guilty about the current continuing brokenness of that relationship, um, which probably yeah. won't, you know, is, it cannot be until we are all put right and, and the whole... Heaven and earth, new heaven and earth are ushered in. Uh, there is something provisional about the whole process until it, until everything is put right. I think. So, in in this in in that kind of circumstance, we are talking about something where um, forgiveness isn't going to have any immediate effect on the relationship. Mm. Um, what it does forgiveness mean? Does it mean you are actually actually giving the responsibility for that person and that hurt? To God, and and therefore perhaps freeing yourself enough to move on, not be bound by that abusive relationship or mm-hmm. whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think that's that's one whole element of it. Yes, and I think the other is what you are in effect saying to them is, in the current fallen, messed up world, um, I'm, I'm not going to go back into what is an abusive relationship however i would i would like to be in a relationship with you when when everything is put right Mm -hmm. 
when it is no, there is no longer any threat, when, when that is a safe thing to do. Um, and that's why I think there is what theologians would call an eschatological dimension. Yeah, I was to, just going to, to say something like that without um, using those words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is a future dimension yeah. too. Or hope. You could just use the word hope. Yeah, yes, if I weren't committed to you using live. long, <laughs> in, incomprehensible jargon. Why use yes. one syllable when exactly. five could be? <laughs> exactly. Yes, but we live in hope. And if you, mm. if you enter into some uh, state of mind where you say, I have completely given up on this one person. I will never talk to them again. I will never mm. even be in a relationship with them, even if they wanted to, which is what unforgiveness would be. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have given up on on the hope that things might change. That's right. I think you need to say that which is good about you. You're made in the image of God and that is good. Um, And and I would love to to explore that in relationship. Now, it is not currently safe to do so, (laughs) given this kind of abusive relationship example that we're using. Um, But when things are put right it would be good to be able to explore that. Uh, And that's actually a way of saying you're valuable. You're intrinsically valuable. Um, And And that God doesn't give up on people. And that God doesn't give up on people. We we know people at certain stages of their journey with God, and they may be stages that are seriously sinful and Mm. and broken, but we don't know their whole story with Mm. God. And I think that's, again, part of of the, the equation with forgiveness, isn't it, is that... Is, is recognizing God <laughs> as part of these relationships that we're in. Well, this is where socio-politically it's quite Christianity is quite wonderfully uh, different. You might even say subversive to the to the way that modern life likes to work. So when we when we are trying to arbitrate between two groups who or two people who who have fallen out, if you take Christianity out of the mix, then what you're trying to do is you're you're trying to get the what the wronged group. To have its all its just desserts, and you and the, the sinner or the the person who broke the law has to has to face due punishment for all these things, and nothing will happen until that process has worked itself out. But then you bring Christianity in, and all of a sudden you have Christians who are wronged, who are saying, "I'm not going to pursue this any further. I I forgive you. I'm mm-hmm. not going to take you to court. I'm not going to have this long drawn out process." where all your sins will be made known and where you will have to face up to each and every one of them. And there's actually something quite, uh, well, I say subversive about that, mm. where mm. where all of a sudden Christians are doing things which completely buck against the system. Mm. And I, I think that's not been explored very often, but often these stories of, you do see some quite dramatic stories of, of Christians who choose to forgive their uh, people who have committed quite awful crimes against them. And, it's really something that people can't really understand, mm. but it's the most attractive thing that you see in that person. And in a sense, it is um, trying to embody as much as possible now what's going to be the case then, isn't yeah. it? When, yeah. when relationships are unblocked and unthreatening yeah. and, and safe. Yeah, it's taking a longer mm. view yeah. of human life than mm. I think what you would just normally take. So that is Social and Political Theology in Action, Stephen. Thank you very much. (laughs) demonstration. Um, We should leave it there for today, um, but we will be back again soon, we hope, with with Graham again. Um, But for the meantime, Stephen, welcome. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, as always. And goodbye from me too. Bye. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. 
We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.